Greetings from the Long Island Sound podcast. Welcome to the show. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. And call our listener line and leave a message for our guests. Dial 631-800-3579. All right, enjoy the show. Thanks for joining us for the Long Island Sound podcast. Each week we explore new music and dive deeper with the artists and their stories behind the music. Please subscribe and rate and review us wherever you stream this podcast. Here's your host, Steve Yusko. Chris Marshak is my guest today, and you are in for a real treat. Man, I learned so much about the music industry. He's a producer, drummer, percussionist. He's worked with so many people, and I think you'll be surprised about the song we're going to hear. Have a listen to the remix of Spanish Dancer by Steve Winwood, featuring Chris Marshak. Enjoy. Drummer Chris Marshak has carved out a niche for himself by crafting a sound, feel, and vibe that is sought after by some of the most respected singer-songwriters and artists in the business. Chris creates pulse with sounds. His unique style and approach to making music is based on the fundamental idea that sounds and parts matter. I'm so happy to welcome Chris Marshak to the Long Island Sound Podcast. Great to have you, Chris. Thanks for joining us here. I really appreciate it. Steve, it's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. By the way, there is a guy, the quiet guy in the corner is uh, my good friend, Steve Martino, 
who is trained in percussion and is going to help me in the ways of understanding your language and hopefully we'll ask some great questions. But I have to ask you this, and I'll, I'll do the setup as far as, you know, you're, you're a drummer, percussionist, you're also a producer, and, and you, you help arrange songs together. What's your approach in, in helping piece a song together? As a drummer, I guess. I guess uh, each of those roles is a little different. I think mm-hmm. as a drummer or a percussionist, when I'm playing with somebody, I have a task that I am working on. And that's to try to, my goal is always to uh, find the heartbeat of each of the songs that I'm either performing on or recording on. And um, I do that through sounds, uh, my approach to, you know, where I start in the song. Do I come in at the beginning of the song? Do I wait a little bit, you know, and, and, and give the, the song a chance to develop? Whereas the role of a producer is more of like, a, imagine a helicopter hovering above everything where you have this aerial view where you, you, you know, when I'm a drummer or percussionist, I can be focused on myself and how it fits into the song. But in the role of producer, you need to be considering that, that, ro- that same thing is what I'm playing best for the song. But then you also have to uh, consider the other musicians that are playing on there and figuring out a space for them to um, fit into the, to the puzzle uh, and what instruments to, to, um, to have in there, the musicians you're going to call, you know, who would be right for the certain kind of song. There are a lot of variables as a producer you have to think about. And then of course there's the artist. You have to uh, be the liaison between the musicians and the artist and, and, and hear what their vision for the song is and try to support that. But also at times uh, give your two cents where you think, uh, you know, at least offer it up as a point of consideration. And, um, you know, and I, I find sometimes with artists, when I give suggestions, even if it's the wrong suggestion and they say, you know what, I tried that, but I'm, it, I kind of like it the way we had it originally. You actually help them crystallize their vision for the song. Sometimes taking the song just for a brief moment to a place where they don't want it to be makes them realize, nah, let's go back to what the other one, uh, the other approach was, or let's go where we first started. And I think, um, so as, if I offer an idea and it may not be accepted, uh, I don't view that, you know, I think you have to kind of be egoless in the process because you're helping facilitate this person's song and their creativity. And sometimes suggesting that they go to a certain space and they resist they may be resistant and say nah, i don't really want to go there i like the other one better you're actually helping them focus what's best because music is a lot of creative folks myself included sometimes we can get caught on tangents and all the possibilities of things but when you're in the studio and recording you're committing to a moment you know right and you're this is where the song is at at this point this is the way we're hearing it, and let's commit to that. You know, you know, you bring up a good point. You know, the the uh, approaching thing as far as comparison, where they might have something in their mind of a picture of where the direction of the song may be, and you give them just a different twist to it. Now you have this comparison that you can kind of continue the conversation between artist and producer. But let me ask you this: as far as comparison goes. What has changed? You've been playing for a number of years. What has changed with you as a drummer from 20 years ago to now? Um, that's a good question. You know, as I think back where I was 20 years ago and the way I approach things, I think there are some similarities. You know, I think, uh, you know, I can, as I listen back to old recordings, my voice as a drummer and a percussionist was there. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't as developed. It was on its way. Um, I think now I'm more willing to listen and I think I'm more able to go where the artist wants to go. And I'm less, I'm less, um, I'm more detached from my own ideas. I offer an idea, but my sense of identity isn't there. And I think sometimes, oftentimes young musicians, they have a certain space that they're strong in and they kind of want to bring the music into their wheelhouse so that they're comfortable and sometimes an artist wants to do something. And I guess as I've just been playing for many years and, you know, studied for many years, changing tempo and 
different sounds and all that, I'm pretty comfortable at varying my approach to things. And, uh, and I've developed a little bit of a courageousness where I'm not afraid to go anywhere with right. an artist to see where, to see where they want to go. Even if it's, wow, this is, this is kind of interesting. Well, uh, this is maybe not, this is a little outside my wheelhouse. I kind of trust the process. Mm-hmm. Whereas I think maybe when I was younger, I would try to bring it, bring it to a more comfortable place where I was at. In other words, something that, or, or a certain kind of feel or an approach that I was com- more comfortable with. I tended to, uh, would often even unconsciously steer the song in that direction. Whereas now I'm, I'm aware of that fact. And I'm, I guess just my skills have developed. You know, I've been doing this a long time where you just trust it. I can, I'm ready to go wherever the song needs to go. You know, and I, I'll, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I almost equate – I use analogies a lot just so I can comprehend things because I'm a bit of a knucklehead. I almost equate with what you do – I'm sure you played in a lot of different genres. I looked at you know, some of the videos and the songs you've been on and it's it's kind of a broad spectrum. It's almost like being a softball player, a golfer and, and a, uh, a major league player at the same time. You know, you're all hitting balls but differently with different styles and different – techniques and muscle memory. And that's what I, I, I found interesting about your career as both a producer and a percussionist. Uh, well, um, I think that, you know, as a drummer and a percussionist, the goal is to play what's right for the song, to find the heartbeat mm-hmm. of that particular song. And sometimes if you do that well, people see you stylistically through the eyes of the song. And they may say, oh, he's a country drummer, or he's a jazz drummer, or he's a singer-songwriter drummer, because they see that song, and if you do that well, or you do it convincingly, uh, both sonically and the what you play, people see you. And, and we live in a world where you know music has genres, and we want to label things. Right. And I think as you know, I've been playing over the years, and I have a pretty substantial body of work that's out there uh, you know, of different styles. And I've kind of let go of that and just like if people are going to judge me for what they are, my goal is to play what's right for the song that's in front of me and that I'm playing right now. And, um, you know, interesting story. I remember I saw a drum clinic with a with a drummer, uh, J.R. Robinson, okay, who uh, played on all the Michael Jackson stuff. We played with uh, uh, Rufus and Chaka Khan and, you know, Steve Winwood back in the high life. I mean, he's he's like a an iconic studio drummer who's, who every drummer knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but he talked about the experience of getting hired, hired to play with Rufus and Chaka Khan. And he said uh, he was playing with this band and he knew Rufus and Chaka Khan and that whole, the band and everyone came in, they were in the place watching him kind of to, to uh, assess him, evaluate him. Yeah. There was a possibility that maybe they were interested in him. And mm-hmm. he said that he, prior to that anytime there was someone he wanted to impress he made a conscious effort to you know play fills and and to really try to play his best and he described this moment where he said i'm not going to do that i'm going to play for the song regardless Mm. of who's in this room and i uh, I remember he shared that at the clinic and ironically that was the gig that he said that he that they heard him and that that ultimately led him to being hired but it always stuck with me because you know the ego we have you know in music if we take even outside of music people have egos the way we're perceived we want to come across a certain way and navigating knowing when your time is to shine but also having humility at other times and navigating that and playing for the music is extremely um i think important and it's rarer these days um uh, because of uh, things like you know Instagram and there's a lot of social media stuff where they're they're 15 second increments or 60 second increments, and um, you know in that time frame people I call it drum nastics where people right. play and, and do it's a just flurry. like it, it's yeah. about the you know it's like drumming has become an extreme sport and sometimes I watch some of these guys and I'm in awe of from a technical standpoint because i you know having played many years i i know what's involved to be able to achieve that um and at the same time as much as i can be appreciated by that 
And we live in a sensationalized society where people are more impressed by bigger, faster things. And finding my niche, niche, excuse me, uh, in in the world, you know, where your 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 weapon is subtlety, you right. know, and and finding a place in this climate of where bigness and uh, and the bigger it is, the faster it is, is more it's more shared on social media and it's, it gets more attention. And to, to what yet, purpose? Right. Well, the purpose is, you know, the, you know, uh, there's a purpose there. And I guess ultimately, you know, um, I don't I don't I don't judge any of those drummers and or that approach. Mm-hmm. I guess at the end of the day, and it's my life. Where where do I fit in this world? And I've never since I was young, I've never felt. You know, I've listened to drum solos. I remember my. My grandfather bought me a Buddy Rich, you know, it was oh. like a Buddy Rich, Louis Belson drum battle uh, uh, album and listening to it. And I was it was just really cool. But once I started to listen to music, there was something about music that was just that the drum solo, even as a drummer, I was uh, I was never really enamored by it. You know, I've certainly studied uh, taken many drum solos myself and and have to that's part of my job is you're on a gig people want you to solo and create mm-hmm. some energy so i do it and i work on it but if i had to be honest you know i tend to yeah it's just when i see it i kind of turn the page like if i see it i'll 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 watch for a minute and appreciate it but i'm gen- generally more i gravitate more towards songs and people who have something to say with their instrument and and it's it's sub, you know it's subjective it's just me and i think uh, as we listen to things you know and developing our sound as a player where we're making the music i think in the listening process we can get in, gain a tremendous amount of insight into who we are but what we like to listen to just just to really be curious about that like wow why do i like this right now all of this it it's not you either um play what you like or you do this it's a, a lot of music is an and you know because to be a working musician you need to be able to be diversified and play different styles play them convincingly um i guess you know some of the things i'm speaking to now are where i'm at in my life and it's about developing a sound what's my musical fingerprint where do i fit into this world musically and who am i because you know if you're trying to be anybody no matter how good you copy them at the very best, at the absolute best, you're going to be is a second rate, whatever that is. <laughs> gotcha. At the absolute best. So I want to be, um, you know, it sounds cliche or maybe it sounds weird, but I'm the best Chris Marshak in the world. <laughs> That's a good, good way to approach it. Hey, and, I got- and yeah, Go yeah. So, so it's kind of like, and I think each drummer and each musician and, I'm moved when I when I sense somebody has something special and they've developed something that's authentic and unique to them. I tip my hat to them, and it, it, it's it's very powerful. I think I think authenticity in, in people and in music to me is something that moves me and gets me excited. You know, I got to ask you this: and are you familiar with the movie Whiplash? I I, I have seen it once when it okay. first came out. So there's this one scene in Whiplash, and I forget the actor's name. He does the uh, farmer's insurance commercial. He's phenomenal. Yes, I know exactly who you're talking about, but I cannot remember his name. And in this scene, he's ripping this student a new asshole for other purposes. And it was it was just, it just it's disturbing to watch, you know. You know, you're not going to do this to my drum kit, to my jazz ensemble. I mean, the guy was was absolutely brutal, but it was just interesting um, how that scene came about. So I don't know if you've had any experiences with uh, uh, people like that in 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 directing uh, you. In directing I've had, you. Uh, yeah, I, I have. Uh, early on, I had an experience when I was uh, younger. Okay, and uh, I think. Uh, I'll tell you about it in a minute. It's actually, I think you find it an interesting story. But I think that there is in the jazz community. Okay. Uh, you know, we have this art form that is older and it's it's being c- curated and kept alive. And, and there's a real appreciation for the 
for the history of the music. And it's a beautiful art form and knowing the history is very important. Mm -hmm. But I think that with, now with all, you know, of course, this is just my take on some of the uh, musicians I've interacted with, but it seems to be some type of rite of passage to be, you know, really hard on somebody like you got to get your shit together. And, and there's some nobility in it, having, okay. having it be done to you and you also maybe doing it to a younger musician. And I never, Really? It's almost like it sounds like almost like hazing when when you it, come into a group in order to pass uh, the smell test. I guess can you take it? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I I had an experience. I remember, you know, I started playing drums when I was like twelve years old, and when I was in ninth grade, I, I you know, however old, a few years later, I had never really played jazz. You know, I was playing rock and roll at the time. And I remember my mother seeing something. Uh, IAJ, which was the International Art of Jazz. There was something on Monday nights at Stony Brook University. Okay. She said, it looks like this thing, and you go there, and it's about jazz. Maybe you'd like And she signed me up. Hmm. So I remember I remember going. And uh, it was, you know, it would start off where the um, you'd go into your groups of drummers, bass players, piano players, horn players. And you'd work with your instructor, and then you'd come together, and you'd listen to the instructors perform together. And it was my introduction to jazz. And hmm. the drummer there was a, a, a fantastic drummer and teacher named Michael Carvin. Uh, and uh, still alive today, still playing great. And he was my first introduction to uh, learning about jazz. I, it was really, and hmm. even when I was there, there were kids my age, but they had been playing jazz longer. And you could tell it was just, it was more in their blood at that point. It was a new language to me at that point. Hmm. Uh, but anyway, part of the, the evening was you would go and work with some of the other uh, instructors. So not, I wouldn't just work with Michael. I'd work with the guitar instructor and I won't mention his name. Uh, but I remember at the time I, here I am going there on a Monday nights trying to learn about jazz. And I had a Led Zeppelin t-shirt on. Okay. And he, in front of everybody, he blasted me, you know, like, what do you listen to? You should be listening to more jazz. Enough with that Led Zeppelin stuff. Like, wow. really, kind of chastised me in in a way that was. And I remember the guitar. He's still around. He's a guitarist. I remember him. I'm not going to mention his name, sure, uh, because I'll cut him a little slack. But um, um, for whatever, maybe he had a bad day. But anyway, <laughs> you're but a good it man. Was, it was it was a it was a, an embarrassing moment at the time. But Michael Carvin heard what had happened mm -hmm. he heard what he happened and one thing i got from that going to this iha jazz thing with him is that there was a camaraderie among drummers okay. and he was kind of Mike. even back then he was he had, was like a loving but but he had a firm side to him but he did it in a loving way mm -hmm. but he caught wind that this guy embarrassed me and kind of publicly called me out in front of the group and he didn't like it so mm -hmm. when they were playing later that night and that guy was soloing and Michael was playing under him. Right. He was fucking with him. Oh, really? You could spot he it. Was, it was like, don't mess with, yeah, with my, my guy. Yeah. Don't mess with my guys. What you did was wrong. And he was, he was playing in a, uh, he was playing musical, but he made it. I remember the guitar player had a frustrated look. Like he was looking at Michael. He didn't know what was going on. But there was an older gentleman there who was also you know while it was my uh intro to jazz there was another gentleman there who was older i forget he had children at that time mm -hmm. and he would drive me there but i you know i kind of sensed this but he on the way home he said y you know what went on right and i said well, i what do you mean he goes he was sticking up for you right he was he was, he was letting him know so I had experienced that then. I was, again, wearing a Led Zeppelin t-shirt, and he, Innocently. maybe the way I was playing wasn't as real, and he thought I needed to do that. So he used it as to publicly chastise, bringing it back to the movie. And, yeah, I don't know how productive that is. I know it makes a good movie and a good but scene. You know, but you know what's interesting about your story? Your story could have ended with, you know what? I had a bad experience. They were all a bunch of jack-offs, and I didn't go back. But the fact that you had an opportunity to see somebody stick up for you. Um, I don't know. To me, that kind of creates community and say, you know, there's a mentorship here, even in the smallest way that I'm sure affects your life, you know, in the future. I, he made a memory. You know, I think that that memory of uh, this, you know, jazz guitar player 
kind of whiplashing me, for a lack of a better word, in front of everybody. Had that been the last taste in my mouth, maybe it would have been different. But because he, uh, Michael, kind of gave it to him, you know, and he clearly let him know musically, don't mess with my guy. Right. And, and you know, and I'm grateful also I had this older gentleman, older drummer there who who could frame it for me and, and kind of let me know what was going on. Because, you know, I was ninth grade. and Yeah, what do you know, game, right? I, I didn't know, but he was like, that's what happened. And, and, and so... It was always a story, even as I haven't brought it out in a while, the story, but as you brought up the whiplash, I, I, yeah, I don't know. That's just not my personality, too. I guess some folks may gravitate towards that. And, you know, of course, there's the you know the story of Buddy Rich, and there's these infamous Buddy Rich tapes where, like, he would berate his band, and they taped them, and they go floating around the, inch, the internet. Oh, really? Like, wow. And it was, like, really ruthless kind of stuff. And, you know, in the drumming community, it's, you know... You could listen to them, but yeah, that's again, that's just not me. Um, but I do think that that um, and maybe it goes on in other genres. But I've had I've experienced it in, with some some uh, folks in the jazz world, you know. And uh, I don't know if it's a rite of passage to me. It's like a point. I'm like, I think you can achieve the same result, right? With kindness, <laughs> well, kindness, or or you know, uh, like I said, Michael Carvin. In my recollection to him was he was firm but loving. You know, yeah, you know, and he had, a st- I can remember the things he did, you what know, that got me, that was my introduction to jazz and, and, and just, uh, you know, I think that's what a good teacher does. He, 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 he uh, activates a curiosity within you that makes you want to look a little closer at this thing that can seem very complex from a distance, you know? Nice. Well, that's a great story. And with that, why don't we take a break and we'll be right back after this. Thanks so much, Chris. At the Long Island Sound, we're much more than a podcast. We're building a community. Please go to gigdestiny.com. Check out all our social media links. Subscribe wherever you listen to the podcast. Please comment. Call the listener line. Tell us what you think, what questions we should ask, who we should have on the show. And most of all, we thank you for your generous support. And remember, support the artists who are guests on the show. Now back to the podcast. Hey, we're back with Chris Marshak and my sidekick, Steve Martino. Chris, I got to ask you this. How would you describe where you are today and what your wheelhouse is as far as drumming goes? I reached a point in my life where I said, what do I like? Do I like this? And what is it? Why do I like certain things more than others? And I just, again, that curiosity we talked about, it. just be curious about why do I like you know, why do I, you know, in the same way as, as, as people were individuals, you know, and I think as musicians, sometimes, you know, we study to be everything. You want to be able to play jazz, you want to be able to play classical. And, and, and in the same way, a human being can't be everything. Musically, yes, I, I'm always trying to grow with what I do. But at this point in my life, I'm like, who am I? What's my musical fingerprint? Gotcha. Where do I belong? You know, so it's not a, this is who I am, leave me alone. It's this, it's this, it's an and situation. I'm studying, I'm playing jazz, I'm learning, trying to grow my knowledge and find out who I am at the same time. And sometimes finding out who you are is uh, in terms of a sound. And I think this is true not only of myself or musicians, but songwriters. Recognizing who you're not hmm. is equally as important as who you are at some point. You know, when you're younger and you're, and you know, I, I think about when I was 17 and I was, you know, you, I would learn, you know, listen to a Led Zeppelin record and I would copy the the style and, you know, try to learn a Bonham Phil or a Neil Peart. You know, there was something you tried to learn and it was a certain part of development that you could do that. And it was such a fun time to do that. But as at this point in my life, the idea of I, I'm curious about myself, you know, who am I? You know, right. I, it, it isn't as satisfying to me to just play something and do it exactly like someone did it. 40 years ago when they were 21 years old, I, you know, I guess, I guess maybe I just have something to say at this mm-hmm. point in my life. And maybe that's why I am gravitating more a little towards jazz now and, 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 and art forms that are a little more interpretive and, uh, um, yeah. All right. So let, let, let me ask you this. Let's turn back the pages a little bit. Cause I'm very curious about when it struck you that one, did you just pick up the drums at a certain age and that's what you ran with? And 
<laughs> then at what point in your life did you say, hey, I'm really serious and I'm good at this and I really want to uh, keep learning and, and keep developing myself? Where, where did it begin with you, Chris? Yeah, I mean, for me, it, it began with, the, you know, the kid across the street, you know, who I would play basketball in, in the street with. And one day he was also a drummer. But I went over his house one day and his, he wasn't ready to come out. So his grandmother said, why don't you wait downstairs for him? So I went downstairs and there was a drum set down there. And it was like, what is this? You know, and I walked over to it and I, you know, touching it like, you know, like just like afraid that someone would hear me, but yet trying to navigate that with this like curiosity that was just flowing out of me. And, then, you know, I gradually sat behind it and started playing and, you know, he came down and I was startled. I remember being startled, but that was my first memory where I'm like, this is, there's something here that I'm really, really interested in. And, uh, that was my, you know, my first like memory of, of where the drums said, Hey, you know, Hey, come with me, you know, that, that kind of, that, that kind of thing. And, you know, it's funny, I grew up in a house, you know, I, I grew up reading like modern drummer magazine and you'd read these guys who talk about, Oh, I grew up, my father listened to Miles Davis and we played a house full of jazz and it was just music was always playing. We were singing and that was just so not my experience. Wow. At home. I, I, I my grandfather go ahead, go ahead. i'm sorry I, I i tell you know what that's interesting because that's i of the interviews that i've done you know I, I joke around you know my father played the radio you know which is an influence of its own uh but it's interesting to hear that that wasn't your experience i got a quick question was the guy's name mike across the street uh the kid that had the drum set. oh no this was a, his name was kevin kelly actually who was a, a drummer you know at that time he was a couple years older he was the, and and he was a drummer and you know yeah i think when you're young you have a limited experience especially back then before the internet your world was your neighborhood and and, and you right. know the kid was older and the band that you know even the the band that was four years older that played at the high school parties and you know those though they're permanent those guys uh, and, and many of them don't even, uh, you know, don't play professionally now. But the, the the impact that they had at that moment in time on me was 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 tremendous. You so, know, just seeing seeing that actually one of the most amazing, inspiring performance I have was was when the high school jazz band came down to the middle school and played for us. Wow! In my mind, it was the greatest thing in the world. Interesting enough, if you had a recording of it, you probably listen to it now. It probably wasn't that great, I would imagine, or it was okay. But it didn't matter because I was so impressionable at that time. And and there was something about hearing someone take a drum solo and hearing the horns of the jazz band and Mm. just the drums that I had seen in my friend's basement. Now another experience in front of people and seeing how the crowd was interacting with them. And it was just, uh, you know, I think it's the early memories for me. You know, in my house, even like not having jazz, but my mother, you know, John Denver, Elvis, these were the kinds of things Johnny Mathis, my mother would listen to. And um, only until later on, you know, music, I would start listening and then develop the curiosity, which led me to to learn about different artists and people would recommend things and and share the same journey everyone did you know hey you should listen to this and we all had that experience where somebody turned us on to some music and when you it was just uh, a magical time it really was yeah i tell you when i uh so uh the audience knows i actually uh, interviewed chris's brother matt marshak who's who's a well world-renowned jazz guitarist and one of the most humble guys i think in the music business to be honest with you and when i asked matt you know, who was your, who was your influence? He pointed you out, Chris. He said, yeah, when Chris was playing with his buddies, you know, that's where his curiosity got peaked. And, uh, it's amazing how siblings can have that kind of influence on each other. You know, I think part of it too, is, you know, I was the drummer. So all the bands I played with, you rehearse at the drummer's house. So he was home and he was hearing it. Uh, and, my, and my brother, yeah, who, as you mentioned, is very, very successful guitar player and singer-songwriter in his own right. Mm-hmm. He didn't start playing till he was till a little bit later than you know. Um, I think he was sixteen or seventeen when he started playing, which is you know not super late. But he was, um, you know, he would come down. I remember watching the rehearsals and you know meeting uh, the musicians I was playing with, and you know you could see. He started playing and I, I could, as I, you know, now that you say it, I could see the correlation and 
I never really thought, you know, I haven't thought about it lately. But yeah, I guess I'm imagining his older brother playing in the house with these musicians coming over, probably planted the seeds uh, for him in the same way some of those early musical experiences I talked about uh, influenced me. Yeah, know? well, the reason why I bring it is up is so he can hold it over his head, you know, if he gets a little swarm, yeah. a little smarmy, a little, you know, a little too big yeah. for his boots. You know, he can say, hey, I got you started, you know, and Yusko pointed well, that out on the podcast. Yeah, Matt, Matt's a... Uh, you know, we're, we're brothers, but his humility, he's, he's as humble a person as you can get. Absolutely. And, That's right. You know, you know, we'll, he'll be the last person to tell you about his accomplishments and things he, he's he's done. And uh, um, I'm, I'm thankful, you know, it's funny as you get older, you realize like playing with your brother in, in a family situation. You know, I, I really appreciate it more and more now these days. That's you know, great. When we get the opportunity to make music together. So, so as, as you progress through high school, I would assume, and, and you're drumming, uh, you know, did you do the, did you do band in school or did you do the, uh, playing with bands, you know, rock and roll bands, where it progressed from you, for you from that? Yeah. I'm, I mean, I think initially I, you know, I, I took lessons and I, in school I played in, you know, in the band, the concert band and, uh, and then got into the rudiments and all the basic things. And then from there, I think, um, I, you know, you develop bands with friends your age, you know, kids in the neighborhood and let's get together and play. And I grew up on Harrison Avenue in Miller Place and uh, right down the road for me, my, you know, my the person I made the most music with when I was younger was Mike Del Judas um, from Billy Joel's band. And um, and aside from that, you know, I'll, I'll say Mike is a, a extremely fine singer songwriter in his own right. Mm -hmm. and, and I do, I do uh, play and record on, you know, I've been uh, the last few years playing on all Mike's original stuff. And uh, he's, you know, like I said, most people know him for the Billy Joel cause it's such a high profile thing, but in his own right, he's a fantastic singer songwriter and he's a big part of my early musical memories, you know, coming over and he was, he was a force of nature, uh, even at uh, 10 years old, Mike, you know, he could wow. sing. He was playing interesting songs. He exposed me to stuff that I had never heard of. He would come over. We'd rehearse in my, my bedroom. And, you know, a funny story is we uh, didn't have a microphone stand. So we we taped the microphone to the ceiling in my room, which was wallpaper at the time. You know, <laughs> and, and for years later, now my parents have since changed it, but that spot where the, you know, the duct tape came off <laughs> where it was hung from was there for years. And, you know, when you were young, you were curious and you had what you had and you, you were going to figure a way to make that, make something with that. We would play with no bass player, not even realizing that, you know, wow, what, what it would be like to have a bass player. We just wanted to make music and play. And, um, yeah, so Mike was a big part of my earliest uh, musical memories, and and certainly got helped me get me excited and exposed me to a lot of different um, uh, stuff that I hadn't heard at that age. You know? Yeah, yeah, I actually listened to to Mike's because I was trying to get Mike on the podcast, and I was listening to his his original music, which is great, you know, and uh, well, certainly, you know, his fame with Big Shot and Billy Joel overshadows things, but. In his own right, uh, like I, I think he wrote a song for Kevin James for his uh, TV show, and and I listened to a few of his things, and I'm like, wow, this is so it's just really great. And now he has a platform, uh, and he seems like he's all over the place. You know, he's he's you know probably one of the hardest working yeah, and he, guys. And during know. the pandemic, he did that on the porch thing that he did, where he was playing his original music and playing some covers his own way, and, and he's developed a, like a an amazing community of the the cool, you know, these. Uh, these porch, I don't know, they're they're just these people live on the porch and they, they all follow him around and it's just a beautiful community of people that support him. And so I think he's on to something with that. And uh, um, it, yeah, it's 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 amazing. You know, with the quarantine, so many things happen. I mean, we all kind of fell into a depression. Some people became very creative. I had this guy, Dante Mazzetti, who's a fireman in New York City, who played every night from his 17th floor balcony in Chelsea with his wife and built and built an, a huge audience with it and uh, really used social media to uh, expose his music, you know, which is, which is interesting, you know? So let me, uh, I'm going to switch gears a little bit, Chris, in the way things have changed with moving from people 
getting studio time to doing things remotely. I mean, do you, do you meet the artists remotely? Uh, do you meet them first, you know, one-on-one? How does, how does that come about? I mean, you, I mean, the biggest thing, you know, in doing what I do a side man, it's word of mouth, you know, people hear your work. Um, I, I think that that's ultimately people hear what you're doing and they hear something about it that they feel would be connected to their music. And, um, you know, some of the recordings and producing I do, you go into the studio and it's a, it, um, everyone can record at the same time. So you may have a rhythm section, a bass, acoustic guitar, and the singer in there, and you're able to do it together. Um, but in some of the smaller uh, studios, and there sometimes you're doing a track and you may only do two two people at a time and then overdub the rest. So there is no, you know, I think that's the thing about the times we're in. There's really no rule and people are doing it a lot of different ways. And it, I try to, you know, when, with the different artists I work with, depending on what their needs are, and what their level of comfort is, I try to, you know, make them comfortable. Um, um, when you are recording um, file sharing or doing remote recording, you know, uh, sometimes, uh, you know, one, one way to make that an effective process is playing with a click track or a, or a metronome. Mm-hmm. And some folks are used to, are they, they've been doing that, they practice it. Some folks are not that comfortable doing that. So in those cases, sometimes you have to alter what you're doing. You know, back to what I said before, you can have a thumbprint. This is the way you do it, and which makes things easier. And there are certainly advantages to that. But if you're playing with somebody that maybe is self-taught, they're talented and fine, really talented in their own right, but they never did that. And now all of a sudden they're playing and they're thinking. Uh. You're taking the soul of what they're doing out of it. So, um, so navigating that, um, allowing the artist to be comfortable, but also utilizing the process in a way that some people are going to have to play later and trying to create something that feels good and is natural sounding. And sometimes that takes, sometimes that happens right away. Sometimes that takes a little work, mm-hmm. you know? And I think with, um, you know, as far as my own drum tracks, I'm come from a generation where you're like, when I press record, my goal is to, it's a four minute song is to play a, a take that is, that is the song, you know, right, there's right. This, I, I don't think all right, I'm going to play a verse and then I'll just cut. No, I'm, I'm of the ilk of like, I'm trying to make something happen here. Now, that being said, technology is there where you can, you, you hit a snare, you just one little thing's weird. It's a means to an end. I realize some people use technology as becomes the means in itself and they, they don't, you know, they play two bars and they loop it and they do that. And that's just, I'm not here to diminish anybody or there, but that's just not the flow that I connect with. I connect with trying to, um, all, all the old school thing was, you know, before technology you played for four minutes and that was the take and the right. imperfections in there. And that's why I think some of the older recordings that we all have grown to love, what there's something special about them, you know, and they're not all perfect. You know, I think that, that, you know, we live in a, um, a grid based society, you know, we want to quantify everything. We want things to be, you know, in the eighties, when I grew up, when I was in high school, there was you know, drum machines and it set a standard of time that in some ways was helpful to raise everyone's level, but then that became, you know, this, you know, if everyone's playing in a certain thing and to a grid, it takes the individual, the individuality of each person and the musician out of it. And so it's this balance when you're doing the remote recording of trying to keep what's natural, but also keep in mind that you're trying to create art. Interesting. And, once you're, if you're, you know, it's, if it's 1957 and you're Miles Davis and you're recording in a room with one microphone and this is the take, that's it. But once you enter the world of using some of the technology, uh, I think you're, you're at that point, people are going to evaluate the final product as the art, you know, in the same way we go to Star Wars and we see a movie and they're using a green screen to, to shoot the scenes. We don't watch the movie and say, oh, that's not real. They, they use the green screen. That's what they, we judge the art at the end for the art as itself. And I think in music in some ways that ultimately the end art is if you're doing it in a really pure sense where it's one microphone and there's no overdubs, that's a special thing. But once you enter the realm of where you're using overdubs and uh, then I think, you know, at that point, uh, as long as the, the spirit of it is to try to create something that's soulful and, and, and true to the artist, 
judge the end art and see if that moves you. you right. Know? Right. Exactly. Hey, let me ask you this. So coming into the podcast, our audience heard uh, you're drumming, you're playing on Steve Winwood's A Spanish Dancer. How did that come about? Um, that came about uh, in an interesting way. Um, uh, uh, the producer of that is this uh, really talented person named Ben Wish. Uh, and Ben is a, a Grammy award-winning producer who, I mean, is most notably known. He produced uh, Walking in Memphis by Mark Cohn. Oh, okay. And I met Ben in a kind of a roundabout way because I was producing a song for an artist and we were about to mix it. And I didn't know Ben at the time, but the song was reminiscent of a song on Mark Cohn's first record, a song called 29 Ways. And I said, wow, this would be great to have him mix it. And uh, long story short, I reached out to him and uh, somehow got him to mix the song. And when he mixed it, you know, um, I think at that time I was like, well, he's going to mix it. He's got to listen to me drumming. You know, wow, it would be great someday to work with him, you know. Okay. And so he did that song that I produced and I met him. And uh, and then the artist was so happy with the rest of the record. He brought the rest of the record to him to mix. And I played on the whole record. So um, he had to listen to me. So and I would hear feedback, you know, along the way, like, yeah, he really he's he really likes what you do. He's a he's a fan. Mm-hmm. And Ben has worked with, you know, Steve Gadd, Sean Pelton. He's like some of the top guys in the world. I'm like, so, you know, he's – so over time, I played with different artists. And when it came to the mixing, I, I would steer them Ben's way because, he, one, he's very great. He's an unbelievable mixer, uh, sensitive to songs, and he's, he's got a unique voice in what he does. Mm-hmm. But over time, he was hear me play, and I would get – um, you know, I would hear rumblings from the different artists that he was a fan of what I was doing, but he never hired me. You know, I mean, that was something, I, you know, you always when you work with somebody, you hope, wow, mate, do you make enough of an impression that 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 they may consider to use you? And probably like three years went by you know, and a lot of music I sent to him and we became friends, but he had never hired me. Mm-hmm. And I could remember the day that, that you know, I got the, an email and it said session. And I opened it up and it was like, I'm producing a song for Steve Winwood. Uh, we're going to redo. It was going to read. Steve Winwood was putting out a greatest hits and they were going to redo a, a song called Spanish Dancer, which was, on it, which was from his record, Ark of a Diver. Right. Yep. And that whole record was done with the Lynn drum machine. And it was it's, oh, a, it's a really uh, pivotal record. It's, a, it's just a wonderful record. But we were going to do an acoustic version of this song. And uh, so when I cut the track, Steve wasn't there, but we played it and I was playing to the original tracks that were on the recording. And what happened was interesting, we, you know, his original vocals. And when you hear his Steve Winwood's voice in your headphones, it's a, it's, he's an iconic voice to, at least for me. You know, when I hear his voice, there's very few people that have, you know, you hear him in one minute, you know, who's singing. And so as we, I did my parts, I went in and, and originally they were going to just use his old vocal. You know, he was just kind of doing this as like a, a uh, just another new track, an acoustic version to add on the record. But he heard the song and got so stoked about it and excited. He wanted to re-sing the song. Wow. So he ended up re-singing the song and the track ended up on, he put out a, a single CD, you know, the best of Steve Woodward, Traffic, Spencer Davis Group, and a, and a four CD box set at the same time. And the song ended up on both of those, oh, wow. both of those things. Uh, there was on the on the the one CD. It was a shorter radio edit, but on the other song, it was it was the uh, uh, it was a longer version. And so uh, that and that song was the first one I did for Ben, and it's led to a you know a really great friendship. And we work together all the time on a bunch of different projects. And um, I'm a big fan of Ben, but yeah, it was just you know I think with you know think about the process of um how i met him and uh and the other part to it is when i got into recording you know i remember years ago when i got into buying my own stuff to record had i not done that i wouldn't have been producing a song for somebody you know and that led me to have a different role and reach out to him to mix a song that i was producing and so you know I, i find interesting in life not only my life but everyone's is where sometimes we look where we are but if you trace back to 
where it started very often it's it's in an idea of like in my case it was like just researching him on the internet seeing if he was accessible you know dreaming big like hey i don't know this guy but i'm a fan of his work what's the worst thing that could happen i mean my father always his whole thing his whole uh his attitude was always to us you always ask the worst That's case right. scenario you're you in could, the same exact position you were before you asked they could so just say no ask, yep exactly you just you just don't know and had i not done that and it's led to that and so i think sometimes as musicians uh when we want to help ourselves grow and, and expand our circle sometimes the best way to do that is to hire people you know and develop relationships you can't i mean ultimately if i played and i he heard the work that I did and he didn't connect with it. doesn't matter how much your schmoozer are that you hired them. They're not going to hire you. But I feel like uh, in, in the world I live in, word of mouth is everything. So I feel like, you know, people know my name and they've heard me. That's all I can really do. Everything else is out of my control, you know, to, to be, have enough of a presence where people have heard you through the different people you've worked with. And, um, because cause when someone's going to hire me, I'm not in the room. They're, that's a, in anything, in any profession, in a job, when you go for an interview or anything, when you're getting ha- hired, you're not there. So that's a variable that's out of my control. You know, you could just do the best job you can. You could be the best person you can. But at the end of the day, those kinds of things, those good opportunities, he heard enough from me where I guess he, he wanted to have me on it and uh, i'm grateful for that opportunity it was it was a, a wonderful experience and it's led to a really great friendship with ben yeah musically and, and otherwise yeah hey that's all the time we have for part one with chris marshak please check out the second part of the episode we explore the production process and mixing and we really take a deep dive into the music industry and his process there's so much more to learn here So until next time, be well. Thank you for joining us today. I appreciate the time you spent with us. Please subscribe and comment and visit us at gigdestiny.com. Until next time, be generous with your joy, keep your spirits high, and let the music take you on a journey. Be well. Peace. Thanks so much for listening. Please rate, review, and comment on the show. We really love to hear from you. And call our listener line at 631-800-3579. Again, thanks so much. Be well.